bring here. Okay, First Chronicles. There we go. Just so that whoever listens to this will know we're in First Chronicles. Um, so as we uh, jump in, in our Bibles, again, it goes First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Um, however, that, uh, just because the Bible is laid out that way, um, that's chronologically, there's some events that overlap, right? We talked a few weeks ago, even into the book of First and Second Samuel, uh, we, we look at all of these, all of these timelines overlap one another. And so you have to kind of understand the context. For me, I need to understand context and timeline to really see what's going on. I'm very thankful for the, for, for the Chronicles uh, for a few reasons. I want to tell you some differences. Some of the stories you're going to see, we're going to talk about King David some today. There's some genealogies today. Now you may say, well, King David was in 2 Samuel, right? That's Why are we going back to 2 Samuel? Well, because the timelines line up. Now, the one thing we need to know is First Chronicle, or the Chronicles, you know, as we talked about, each of these books with a 1st and 2nd, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, all of them one, one, one piece. But because of the translation, they ended up putting them into two books, uh, mainly because the scrolls weren't long enough, is what most scholars believe when they translated it uh, into Greek from the Hebrew. And so we got these, we've got these now uh, manuscripts or these pieces that are in two parts, two books uh, that we can see and study. I would love to just do a study on the Chronicles, um, First and Second Chronicles crammed into one study, because to see the overall picture, you really need to see the whole storyline. We're not going to do that today because this is probably going to take long enough just going through First Chronicles. Um, but I want to give you a little bit of a, uh, before we jump in, I want to give you a little bit of a difference between the Kings and the Chronicles because a lot of these stories, again, overlap and they line up. So a few things to note about the Chronicles. Uh, the Kings tell us uh, about man ruling, okay, and the Chronicles tell us about God overruling. So it's, it's the same, same storylines, but the uh, same stories, but the storylines are from a different perspective. So I, I kind of broke a part of this little, um, uh, this little chart to give me an understanding of like when Kings was written and when Chronicles was written, who wrote Kings, who wrote Chronicles, who and how and why and all of these things. So what I've learned after looking at both of these in a survey form, just overlooking it, um, the Kings was written before the captivity. Okay? So before the, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, before, before captivity happened, uh, that's when Kings was written. Uh, Chronicles was written after captivity. Now, it was written after captivity, looking back at, our, at, at the lives and the history of Israel. Here's something I've learned in my life. If I'm writing something while it's going on, and then I go back and write it later, the perspective changes, Right? So if I'm riding in the middle of a storm, waves crashing the boat, lightning striking the sail, misery, misery, awfulness, incredible, awful, I see, you know, there's shadows everywhere, darkness, darkness, darkness. If I were to write about the storm after the storm, the, the, the perspective is different, right? The situation is still the same. But the, the perspective is different. So now I'm writing uh, about what I was dealing with emotionally, right? What I was dealing with when I was in the storm, I'm, I'm not writing. I'm, when I'm in the storm, I'm writing about what I see. Whenever I am out of the storm and writing about it, I write about what I was thinking, how I was processing, 
what was healthy, what was unhealthy, right? So the kings give us the perspective in the middle of the storm, time and place. The chronicles give us this, uh, this other perspective. So, and then there's a couple of other pieces to note. The kings were written from the standpoint of the prophets, meaning from a human standpoint, the prophets were the ones who were dealing directly with what was going on in, in the sins and the, the difficulties of, of the people. So it's written from the perspective of the prophets or a human historical perspective. And the chronicles were written from a standpoint of the priests, kind of a historical of the divine. So God's perspective through the, the walking, if you look at this overall from a standpoint. Uh, the uh, Kings embraces the history of the northern kingdom, Israel, right? A lot of the northern kingdom listed. Uh, the Chronicles ignores just about the, key, the, the history of the northern kingdom. Like, it's not even talking about that. It's talking more about the southern kingdom, the people of God, and the line of David. There's something very important that happens uh, in the Chronicles. Uh, the, um, and, and like I said before, the kings were written um, in a, what's called a compulsive way, meaning it's written in the time that it was going on. So in the chaos is whenever it was written, whereas Chronicles was written in a contemplative way, right? Think outside of the time and place, thinking back. Uh, that does something um, very unique in, in the way, in the writing styles. Uh, if you can imagine, if, if you're writing in the chaos... You're writing all these things that are happening around you. If you're writing in, in, a, um, in a journal later, this is, now this is my own personal walk, right? My own personal life. I write in a journal after the day is over, okay? And the reason is because it's calm then. It's quiet then. I'm writing from the piece of a library then. I'm not writing, on a, I'm not writing from a ship where the waves are crashing in. I'm writing in a library where I can think and, and contemplate what's happened around me and being like, man, how did I get through that, right? How did I, how did I, how did I make it out of that storm? Um, and so we read in Kings what happened. We read in Chronicles why it happened, okay? Kind of the difference in the, in the writings, um, and, and even if you, if you jump in to more of a, a, a mental processing of the two books, the kings write about uh, the facts of history while, while the chronicles write about the philosophy of history. Why? And, and, and feelings and the way pro to process in a healthy manner uh, what had happened because it's from God's perspective, not from the human perspective. So uh, they give us some, some beautiful things. In fact, one of the greatest... Um, uh, ways to kind of process this, I found in the Companion Bible. The Companion Bible, uh, is, I read this through a commentary uh, when I was doing this study. Um, listen to what the Companion Bible says about this. So one of the things to note, whenever uh, our Bible, our English translated Bible, uh, has, has the books of the Bible pair, you know, paired up in these, in these manners, right? So this is about the history of the people of God. But if you, if you were to pick up a Hebrew Bible, Okay, let's say you pick up, you go to Israel, you pick up a Hebrew Bible, and it is written in Hebrew, it is laid out in Hebrew, the Hebrew canon, meaning the way the Hebrews put this together. Listen to what the companion Bible, it's, it's ordered a little bit differently. So the Hebrew Bible has the Chronicles at the very end of the Old Testament, okay? Because the, old, the, the way that, that Chronicles wraps up is timeline at the end of the Old Testament. Listen to, listen to what the Companion Bible says. This was awesome. I just wrote this down straight up because it was beautiful and I wanted to make sure and not get it wrong. But it says, 
that the Companion Bible says these books belong to quite another part of the Old Testament and do not follow the sequence on the books of the kings. They are, according to the Hebrew canon, the conclusion of the Old Testament. That's what I just said, right? And it says, and the genealogies here lead up to that of Matthew 1.1 and the commencement of the New Testament. They end with the ending of a kingdom and the question of Cyrus. Cyrus asked the question in 2 Chronicles, the very, very last, the end of 2 Chronicles, the last of the book, he asked this question, who is there? He says, Jerusalem, this, this is a, God is going to deliver his people. And so he says, who is it among you that's going to be the one to deliver? Well, then you open, so then in the Hebrew Bible, you turn the page and then you see the first question asked in the book of Matthew is, it's followed with the answer, and it says this, where is he? It's the Magi coming and saying, who is he that's been born king of the Jews? I'm getting chills all over me. Because it's, we, we miss that piece whenever we don't read it in the chronological order of the way it is. Because the ending of the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew canon, says, where, who is he that's coming? And then the, the opening of the New Testament says, where is the one that's just been born? Because we've seen his star. We know, and that's in Matthew chapter 2, verse number 2, because it goes through the genealogies, right? So the genealogies wrap up in Chronicles. Now, um, it's kind of beautiful. Uh, I love how, it, how that companion Bible wraps up this thought. It says, And the proclamation of the kingdom by the rightful king and his forerunner. It begins with the first Adam, Chronicles, and leads on to the last Adam, it deals with the kingdom of Judah because Christ was proclaimed as the successor of David. I like how that explained it. It helped me see some things about how, you know, we, we sing, God, great is your faithfulness, right? Great is your faithfulness. Uh, one of the things that chronicles that we have to understand, it was written after the captivity in Babylon was over. Um, and so when the people had returned, when the exiles had returned, this remnant showed back up, everything was in ruins, everything. They go back to the land, the promised land, and when they got there, there was no temple. It had been destroyed. There was no throne. It had been destroyed. There was no luxuries anymore. There was no... These people had to re-pioneer this place that once belonged to them because they had failed so many times. The Chronicles explain, especially in Second Chronicles, we'll see next week, it explains a lot about every problem in Israel. Every problem was basically, the root of every problem was apostasy or de denouncing the, the worship of the true God. Every problem that Israel faced was a spiritual problem. Can I say today, as a pastor, I've been in ministry now over 20 years, 21 years I have been in ministry. Seven of those years here and the other 13 plus years in other places. And here's what I have learned throughout my ministry and my life. Every problem you face is a spiritual issue. Every one of them. And I can go back to scripture. Now you may say, well, there's health issues. Yeah, but the, that, the, that's not the real issue of your life. That's not the real problem of your life. It's like whenever, whenever the man gets lowered into the house with Jesus, right? And he looks down, he looks at the faith of these men. He looks at this man, he says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's thinking, well, he's paralyzed. That's the, his sins aren't the problem. And, God, and Jesus is like, oh, the, the sins are the problem. That's the only true problem that he has. Now, these other things may be inconveniences, but the true problem, the root of his issue, 
is the, the fact that he's not connected to the Father in heaven. That's the true issue. Chronicles help us explain that and help us see that. As we look through this, um, one of the things that, uh, that Chronicles also does is it interprets to the people. Because here's what happened. Whenever the, the exile people, when, they, when the remnant returns to the promised land, they got there and they were, they were not satisfied. Why? Everything was in ruins, right? This was my home and my home is now left with nothing. I don't understand. And so they were getting weary and they were getting to the point where they were not happy about the way that they were living now, the pioneer life that they had to live. And so the Chronicles helps explain and interpret the history of the people of Israel to the people of Israel so that they could find their joy again. And here's what happened. This is, I got chills because I know what I'm about to say. Even though what Chronicles does, it shows even though the throne of David, listen to this, the throne of David had been destroyed. But what Chronicles does is says, yes, the throne of David is destroyed, but the line of David is still alive. The line of David is still good. And I say that because as we look right into Chronicles, and this book covers 3,500 years, by far the longest span of any books of the Bible, this is the one that spans the furthest. And here's how I know that this is the way that it is. It starts out in 1 Chronicles, uh, the first nine chapters. If you, in your spare time, you say, you know what, one of my favorite things to do is to read a telephone book. If that's your favorite thing to do, you will love the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. It's fantastic. Um, I, I thought about it like this. I, for a while, for a long time, these last couple of years, I traveled all around the country and preached, right? I traveled, I preached crusades, I preached conferences, I preached revivals, I preached uh, on Sundays, all, all over the place. All kinds of different cities. It was amazing. I got to go and preach to all these different people. I, now, the problem with that is I had to stay in hotels. Hotels, whenever you're a kid, are like, this is the most awesome thing ever, when you are an adult, you're like, this bed is terrible, right? Like, that's, that's how, you, how you do things. You're like, did I bring all of my shampoo? You know, did I bring all of my... Everybody's like, shampoo, get it? Uh, as, we, as we walk through all of this, um, I, I realized something. It's like reading the first, the first nine chapters of Chronicles is, is like um, reading a phone book in a city you don't, you don't live in, Right? <laughs> I, it's like me moving, you know, going into uh, uh, to some other city, into Washington, D.C., picking up a phone book and just reading name after name after name. I'm not connected to any of these people. <laughs> I don't know who they are. I don't know these, you know, there's last names in there I don't even know. Like, I don't recognize. If I'm here in the South, there's some names I see. Oh, Belcher. Oh, yeah, I know some Belchers. Oh, Beeler. I know some Beelers. Oh, you know, I can go because they're somewhat familiar. When I pick up the book of First Chronicles and I read the first nine chapters, I'll be totally honest with y'all. I don't know many families with these names. I just don't. Even throughout the scripture, I'm like, well, that name looks a little familiar with this name. First nine chapters is all about that. Then I, I thought, why, Lord, there's not a word in here that's misplaced, right? The Bible, God put every word in here on purpose. There is nothing in here that we could say, well, this doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter. And then I began to wonder through these first nine chapters, you know, when I, when I teach this every Wednesday, I, I read through the book that we teach. And it's, it's a lot of reading. It's a lot. And I was reading through these names, and there's a couple moments where, I'm just totally honest with you, 
I just began to kind of skip through some names, right? I'm like, okay, well, we're good. Where does the name stop? And I go all the way down these eight full chapters of name after name after name. And I thought, Lord, why in the world did you write all these names? Why are all these names in here? And it was almost like the Holy Spirit just pushed in my heart. God loves, loves writing names in a book. And I thought, I am very thankful that the Lord likes writing names in a book. Like, I'm very, because in, in this moment, I thought, I don't know any of these names, but the names in the other book he's writing in, I'm going to know, and my name's in there, and I'm okay with it. And so already, First Chronicles, the first nine chapters may seem like you're reading a telephone book, but understand that the author of life put those names in the telephone book, and he's the one who loves us enough and I hope and pray that everyone I've ever contacted in my whole life, everyone that I've had a connection with in my life, I hope and pray their name is written in a book. And I'm going to do all I can to make sure that the gospel that puts their name in the book, I'm going to hope and pray that I share that clearly and that I help people see it. I realized just the other day as I was working through just these first nine chapters, here's what I did in these first, I know you're like, let's get into this. But here's what I, I'm just telling you my, my journey through it. I began to think, Lord, how many names have you written in your book that, um, that I was a part or I was in the moment where they accepted you? And I began to think through my ministry over the last 10 years, 11, 11 years, since I've been away from New Providence. Okay, so when I left New Providence um, and went and became a student pastor and then began kind of preaching and teaching and, and really kind of moved around and my ministry kind of grew, um, I, I think, and as best I can tell, I think through my ministry, the best I can, I can reason out, I have seen, I have led a little over 800 people to Christ in the last 10 years. And I thought, how amazing is it that I was in the moment, now, I, listen, I didn't do anything to save them, nothing. Like, I, I didn't. All I did was get out of the way and let the Word do the work. That's all I did. Because here's what I learned early on when I was working here as a youth pastor. What I learned was I can save no one. No one. There is nothing I can do. It is not about me. It is, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm in it at all, they're probably not getting enough Jesus, okay? They're just not. Um, and so I began thinking, like, of all the names and all the connections that God has put uh, and, and allowed to connect them to the Father in heaven, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. And I thought, as I was reading these first nine chapters, I was, started counting the names, and then I got, I got tired of counting. I did. And usually I'll, I'll count to the very end, but I got tired of counting because I thought, man, how amazing is it that we have the opportunity to share life-giving hope and God writes somebody's name down in a book for us, with us, through us, like in that moment. Like, it's, it's incredible to think of. And so I encourage you, the first nine chapters, if you love reading telephone books, Check it out in the first nine chapters of the book of Chronicles. Uh, what we see, um, the first section, the fir those first nine chapters tell us pre-exile names. Pre-exile names. So those of the, the people of God, the genealogy, before the exile into Babylon. Okay. Now, in, from chapters 9 and on, 9 and 10 specifically, uh, it, talks, it gives us some post-exile notes, okay? So some things that were happening after. In chapter 9, in fact, it starts out, so all of Israel uh, was recorded in genealogies, and, those, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel, and Judah was taken into exile because of their breach. Now, 
the first to dwell again in their possessions in the cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temples, the servants. So then he goes in and says, now these are the ones that have returned. But the genealogy was never broken. Again, this is God showing us the throne of David may be destroyed, but the line of David is still very much alive. And that's what we need. It's not that we need a throne. We need a Savior that sits on the throne. Sometimes we put a lot of emphasis into the position and we don't put enough emphasis on the person, right? We see the position of king, but do we know the person of king? That's what Chronicles helps us to see. In the chapter 9, we see the, the, uh, he tells us a couple of different groups of people. He first talks about just the people of Israel in those first nine verses or so. Then he talks about the priests of Israel. Then he talks about the Levites. He, he wraps that up with King Saul's family. Um, and then uh, he, in chapter 10, uh, what we find is the, uh, the death of Saul and his failure and his fall in those 14 verses in chapter 10 of uh, how Saul fell and just um, uh, did not do what the Lord had told him to do. In fact, those last two verses in chapter 10, uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, it says Saul died for the breach of his faith. I like the way that is written. Um, I don't like the, the thought of it, but uh, he died for the breach of his faith. He broke faith with the Lord, and therefore, because he, 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 didn't, he didn't follow the commandments of God anymore, he consulted a medium to uh, give him some insight as opposed to consulting God. He never consulted God in that, in, in that end of his life. He was consulting the medium and the spiritual uh, side of, of the enemy. And so, therefore, at the end, God put him to death and gave the kingdom to David, uh, the son of Jesse, uh, it says in verse number 14. And so we see that then in chapter 11, David gets anointed king and begins his reign. And it talks about his mighty men and these people that David surrounded himself with and that God surrounded around him. We know this about David. By this point in the scripture, we've already read story after story after story, right? We look in 2 Samuel, we look in, uh, in some of the kings, and we see like the stories of what had happened with the Philistines and David. You know, we, we know the shepherd boy who slays Goliath. We know these pieces and these stories by now. So what it shows us in the Chronicles is how David set up this, uh, this kingdom and how he was really the man of war. God had called him to be the king in this, uh, in this war time. Now, again, all of this happened. Uh, we talk about the pre-exile, post-exile. This is all before, right? This is, we're going back now, back in time, to when Israel was one nation before it had split after Solomon, which we'll read more about next week. Like, there's a lot going on here and a lot of timelines that overlap. But one of the things about the Chronicles is it, ta it talks a lot about and gives us, again, the why of what we need to understand. Um, so after in chapter 11, when it talks about uh, David and his mighty men and how they are um, uh, powerful and strong, uh, chapter 12 continues in that and talks about how these mighty men are assembled. It's kind of like chapter 12. Um, and again, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of things that, are, that, we, that we read through it. Uh, in my mind, in today's uh, uh, culture... I would say this is like Captain America yelling out, Avengers, assemble, right? Like these are the strong, mighty men, and he is assembling them together to be a unit. That's another piece in the scripture that we see. Whenever, this, whenever David's men are unified, I mean, they're dangerous. I mean, they are there's nobody that can stop them. Like it's amazing how strong and how powerful they are. Now, we can, we can say... 
all these different pieces about it. We can say, well, it's because of God's uh, uh, blessing here. It's because of this, the weakness of the enemies. It's because of the strength of the... It's, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's God, God set David on the throne. Now all of these mighty men are assembling together, and they are unified under this king and under this leader. When they're unified under the leader... God does amazing things. Like he does, and it's all God doing it. And as he works through um, these pieces in chapter 13, what we find after the, all the men are assembled, David's, one of David's first real go-getter things is he says, the Ark of the Covenant of God needs to be brought back. Now this is before the temple was, born, was, was built, right? Solomon, his son, builds the temple later. We, and we've, we've kind of walked through some of these stories so far, right? What the Chronicles does is shows us Okay, David, after his mighty men have been assembled, he says, what we're going to do is we're going to take back the Ark of the Covenant of God and bring it to its rightful place. Then something kind of crazy happens. In chapter 13, uh, we see that there's a guy who touches the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is this, it's this um, uh, we need to do a study on it because it's amazing too. It's this piece of, of furniture. It's this, it's this object that has these pieces in it, and it's got this, it's, it's, it's as, through the Old Testament, it's the picture of the presence of God, right? And this is where the presence of God rested whenever it was in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. This was the piece, the prime piece. And so what David says is, we need to bring this back to where the people of God reside and to the holy city. So he goes to, they go to get it, and a guy touches it that's not supposed to touch it, not permitted to touch it, not supposed to touch it. Soon as he touches it, drops dead. That's in chapter 13. And when that happened, David is even like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Kind of gets frustrated with God. He's like, God, we're trying to do the right thing here. And God said, doing the right thing the wrong way isn't the right thing. Note that. Doing the right thing the wrong way isn't okay. God says, I have a, I have a way, I have a process, I have a, because I'm holy, don't do, this the, don't do this in your own power, don't do this the wrong way. Be sure you know I am a holy God, is what God is saying. Now, when, when, Uzziah, when Uzzah dies in this moment, and they, they just leave the ark in this place. In fact, they're leaving it in a place uh, called Obed-Edom. And when, it, when he leaves it in Obed-Edom, uh, it says the end of chapter 13, they left it there three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Because the, the Ark of the Covenant was there. This is where God's presence was. Like, Obed-Edom benefited from this, uh, the, the presence of God just resting there. Because here's the thing. God is, not, God is a God of grace and mercy and love and care. He's also very, very, very holy. 100% holy. There is no flaw in this God. And so he, he, this, this process takes place. So in chapter 13, we experience this moment that's kind of, it kind of sticks out a little bit odd. I felt like when I was reading through it, I thought, well, God, David tried to do the right thing. Like he tried to do the right thing. And because this one mistake had happened, you're going to allow these people to not experience, like this guy dies because, and, and he was trying to catch it, by the way. Like he was, he was trying to, to prop it up. He wasn't doing anything immoral or, or unethical in, in our sense, in earthly sense. But he was doing something outside of the, 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 the prophet of God and the, the procedure of God. And because they did that, then God killed Uzzah. Now, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, so it stays there for three months. The story keeps on in, in 1 Chronicles into chapter 14. Now, chapter 14 is um, by far one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. 
I know I have a favorite every week, but this one in, in chapter 14 of 1 Chronicles, one of my absolute favorites for a couple of reasons. One, it's uh, David goes up, the enemy shows up against David, the Philistines, in fact. Uh, so down in verses 8 and following, uh, what you'll see is that uh, David was in the, uh, I, I preached this a couple of years ago, this text, and, and honestly, it, it blew me away. Because here's what's happened. David has now, he's, at the, he's in the throne. He's in the position God's called him to be. As soon, this is, there, there are so many principles here, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because I know we're surveying, but this is important for us to understand as we go through the Chronicles. As soon as God's man was in the position that God called him to be in, the enemy got mad. The enemy got frustrated. The Philistines began to say, oh, no, 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 we're stopping this. It's what I say a lot of times when God moves, resistance shows up. Anytime God is on the move, the enemy doesn't want it to happen. This, this is First Chronicles 14. God was moving. He put his man in place. He put his army in place. He put the people in place. So the enemy of God began to say, we're going to take him out. So here's what happens. David goes to God and says, God, the enemy is coming up against me. Will you deliver them in my hands? David doesn't go running out and saying, I'm strong, I got my mighty men, we're taking them out. He doesn't build sniper towers and then take everybody out. That's not what he does. He says, God, will you deliver them into my hand or will you not? It's David, this man of faith early on who says, what are you going to do? And God says, go and attack them. They had, it showed that the enemy shows up in this, in this valley, show up in this valley, and they, they, have, a, they have a strategy. And so, what God tells David is, go and take him out. So David goes and takes him out. It's like a verse or two in chapter 14. I was like, that's awesome. That's amazing. So then the next verse later, another verse later, what happens is it says the enemy, the Philistines, have camped in the same spot again. Because here's what I've learned. The enemy doesn't stop. The enemy doesn't want God's purposes or God's plan to thrive. So what does the enemy do? The enemy camps back in the same spot again. The enemy shows up the same way. It's the same process, same old story. Here's what I've learned about the enemy. He doesn't have many attack routes. He knows exactly how to get to you. The enemy knows your pattern and your weaknesses. The, why would the enemy try to attack one of your strengths? He's not going to do that. He's going to attack you at your weakest point. That's what the enemy does. And guess what? He does it every time. I talk to teenagers a lot. I talk to young people a lot, people in their early 20s and late 20s. And what I've learned is we all have these weak spots, right? And whatever your weak spot is, that's where temptation shows up every time, every time. The enemy, he's got one mode of attack. Attack your weakest point, and it will bring you all the way down. That's what happens. So whenever the people of God, David, sees the enemy in the same place. Now, now here, if I was David, let me tell you the problem I would have. As a young man, I'm, I am shocked and blown away that David would be this wise. But David, the enemy shows up in the same spot. Now, he had just attacked them and defeated them, and awesome. It was amazing. He had prayed. The Lord said, do this. And he did it, and they were done. Then the enemy shows up again. Now, David, as a young man, a man of war, in our opinion would have just said, oh, nuh-uh, and gone and taken him out again. But what does David do? He goes back to the Lord again. Lord, the enemy's back. Will you deliver them into my hand this time? And here's what God says. Here, here's here's the, biggest, the, the biggest point of chapter 14. God says, 
I will deliver them a hand, but it's going to be different this time. In fact, this time, this is, again, one of the craziest, one of the most awesome stories ever. He says, this time, I want you to go around to the other side. The attack strategy is going to be different, David. Don't think that I'm ever going to do things the exact same way again. You think that God, God of yesterday is going to do the same thing he did yesterday. He's going to do that again today. No, no, no. See, he's creative. God is not duplicative. God is not a copy maker. He's not a copy machine. He's a creative person that is creative, and he's, he's way too powerful and way too amazing to not blow our minds every time the enemy shows up. Listen, do you realize when the enemy shows up in your life, God is too amazing to say, well, same old enemy, we'll do the same old strategy. No, no, no. See, David goes back to God and says, God, how do you want me to do this? And God tells David this. He says, I want you to go this time on the other side of the valley, and I want you to go underneath the balsam trees. And when you get under the balsam trees, I want your army to wait until you hear marching in the tops of the trees. <laughs> you know why there's marching in the tops of the trees? Because that's where God's angel army is going out ahead of us. And so David takes his military men, the mighty men who already slayed the Philistines, right? Who already killed the enemy once through sword, through power, through strength. And here's what God is telling David. David, don't get arrogant. Don't get conceited. Don't think that this is just your men stronger than their men. This is your God stronger than their God. So he says, go around this side, and when you hear the marching in the tops of the trees, then you know the Lord has gone out before you, then go get them. And what happens next is amazing. I got chills all over myself. Like this is one of my, again, I can't, this is so good. Because what happens next is David is there with his mighty army, thousands of men, and they're standing in the woods, and they're ready to go, but they're completely silent. Why? Because they're listening for the sound of the marching in the tops of the trees. So all of these men sitting here listening, their ear is turned up. They're not thinking, see, here's what happens with us. We're afraid because we listen to the marching on the ground of the enemy. Is he getting closer to us? Is the enemy, is the threat showing up closer in our life? And here's how this looks. Temptation shows up in our, in our, in our personal life, in our, in our conversations, in, our, in all of these areas. The temptation shows up. Why don't we jump in here and follow this thing online? Why don't we jump in here and follow our instincts to gossip here? Why don't we jump in here and, and keep this from God? Why don't we do this? All these temptations begin showing up. And we, as a people, if we're not following after God, we're listening to the sound of the enemy. Oh, no, no, no. God's people are listening to the sound of God moving. And whenever they hear the marching in the tops of the trees, the army goes nuts, right? Can you imagine being in the army of God? Soldier, foot soldier, ready to go, sword in hand, shield in hand, helmet on, breastplate on, shoes fastened and ready to go, standing in silence, not willing to move until they hear the God of glory move. Soon as God moves, this is what happens next. They chase the Philistines out even further this time. You say, why does that matter? They, they chase them further to the west. Do you know they chase them as far and they regain the territory that Saul lost in his last battle? Do you know why? Because God says, I don't want you just to defeat the enemy. I want you to take the ground that belongs to you. I don't want you just to... I'm getting all, all over myself today. Man, I'm getting too preachy. Let's keep going. Okay, verse chapter number 15. So chapter 14 is great, amazing, beautiful, incredible. I wish that David would have kept that type of intensity listening to the Lord. I really do. 
I really wish he would have kept that. And my heart, listen, when God revealed this to me several years ago, in that, my heart has been, my prayer has been nearly every single day, God, let me listen to the tops of the trees. Do not let me listen to the enemy on the ground because the enemy on the ground is not going to win. He's not going to. The God in the tops of the trees is going to win. And when he goes before us, he says, I'm not even going to let you take over just what the enemy has captured right now. I'm going to let you take over what the enemy has been capturing over the last decade. You hear me? Over the last decade, the enemy has come in. And my prayer is that God take, take back what was yours from the beginning. And I, I can't do it. David's first battle with the Philistines didn't do it. It, it, was, it took this being patient, waiting, and listening to the Lord. So chapter 15, what happens next? The Ark of the Covenant finally gets brought back to Jerusalem after these great victories against the Philistines. Now he says, we're going to do this the right way. David is very sure. He says, let's be sure that we are doing all of the right things to make sure that this ark is brought back. So what does he do? He puts together singers. He puts together worshipers. They have sacrifices. They're in fine linens. They have horns, trumpets, loud music on harps. They have cymbals. They have this percussion, these drums. Like they say, we are going to worship because God is on the move. Like if we, if we would just like... I love the Chronicles. <laughs> These are so good. If we would just worship because God is on the move, and worship doesn't mean that we have to have a certain music, all this. Like there's, there's a, a plethora of music going on. There's a plethora of shouting, and there's even dancing that happens in this because celebration takes over. And when, the, when you see the Spirit of God moving, when you see and experience God's presence on the move, like you are saying, He's on the move around me. He is doing something around me. I'll tell you what, what, what burns me up. This is, you want to know what burns your pastor up? Here's what it is. When God moves and we just golf clap, like it drives me insane. It drives me insane. When I found out Sunday morning that one of our kids had, uh, in our church had gotten saved, I thought, you have got to be kidding me. And I, I, I beg for a childlike faith. I beg for an awe and wonder. I, I beg for that from God all the time because I don't ever want to become used to the God of glory showing up in a human's life and changing it. I don't ever want to get used to that. I don't ever want to say, oh, that's just normal. That's just what we do in church. It's not what we do in church. It's what God does from heaven. It's not just our traditions and our, in our, our processes and, oh, well, that's their next step in their little journey. That's great. Next step in their journey. The God of glory who speaks all things has just rescued one from the clutches of the enemy. Like, what just happened in our presence? How many ears, how many, how many eyes were soaked with tears because God was moving in this little girl's life this past week? How many of us had this fresh encounter with him saying, God has just done this. I read this in Chronicles and I see in chapter 15, when God is moving, people are shouting for joy. Why? Because God is on the move. We've become too complacent in this time. This is what King David was saying. The last regime under Saul, the last process, all of the idolatry and all of the things, the wickedness that had shown up, we have been desperate for a move of God. We cannot become so, in, so blinded by when God moves. He could at any moment destroy us. At any moment. And yet he does not. I love how in this chapter, 
Um, it tells us in chapter number 15 that uh, there's all this great worship that happens. Then verse number 29 of chapter 15, the last verse of that chapter, it says, And the, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. You know, the enemy, those with evil in their heart, despise when someone is crazy joyful in the Lord. They just despise it. You know, we, we talked in uh, a couple of weeks ago in 2 Samuel, uh, we saw this in chapter number 6, uh, just explaining David's wife, McCall. Uh, and really, McCall, we had mentioned back then that McCall was really more of, of the daughter of Saul than she was the wife of David, right? She had this, um, this, this just paganness in her, this, this hatred toward God's people in her. And um, so, we need and be reminded, listen, who you surround yourself with matters. Like who you surround yourself, who you have in your ear matters, matters, matters. Uh, in chapter 16, uh, we see that the Ark of the Covenant has been now set in place. It's now put where it needs to be in First Chronicles 16. And when it is, um, there is a worship service that breaks out. David sings this song of thanks. Uh, this song of thanks is amazing. I encourage you to read First uh, Chronicles 16 and just hear David's song of thanks because it comes from this place that is a, a deep sense of joy and thankfulness. I, I love, I had a pastor one time who loved Thanksgiving, his favorite time of the year. I was like, what about Easter, man? He's like, Easter's great. He said, but I just love Thanksgiving. And I'm like, how can you not love, man, you're a pastor. You're supposed to love Easter the most, right? That's, and then Christmas second, because it's Jesus born, maybe both of them the same. And he said, well, here's what I've learned about the church. And, and we were in a church situation that was just, um, uh, just seemed to be not as, not, not, didn't have the thankful spirit. He said, I, when I got saved, and he got saved when he was a little kid, he said, I just started being thankful for things. And I said, why? He's like, because it's God. It's all God. He said, I don't deserve him. I didn't, deserve, I didn't do anything to deserve God. No, nothing. You, you realize we did everything to not deserve God. Like, that's what we did. And this thankfulness in David's song, whenever he sees God move, and the fact that God would move in his lifetime, the fact that God would move in his reign as king, the fact that God would use him in a way, David just burst out in this thankfulness. Man, I, I, I encourage people all the time, please, 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 write down what God's doing in your life. Just write it down. I go through, people, somebody asked me on Sunday, they said, how are you always smiling and joyful? They said, we know you've had trouble this week. We know you've had problems this week. We know you've had, had all kinds of stressors this week. And I'm like, absolutely, but you know what? I've looked over and reviewed what God's done in my life, and he's been faithful, and he's going to be faithful today. He's, go, he's not going to fail. People are like, you're... you're, you're Un, how do they inappropriately happy that's what they told me i was inappropriately happy and i was like well then i'll be inappropriately happy and you just gonna have to deal with it they're like how can you be that way i'm like because i'm not smart enough i maybe i'm just a little bit too dumb to realize that maybe i should be a little smarter with how things are happening i don't know i i'll take it man because listen i i have i have a joy in my life and you're like how does this where does this joy come from i'm like read the word like read read it it's good I promise. It's so good. I, I've, I've never, I, I just can't get around how good it is. Anyway, con continuing on. So chapter 17, something amazing happens. Uh, David becomes very intimate with the Father in heaven, uh, and he experiences God's voice, um, and the Lord gives him a covenant. And whenever he gives him a covenant, he prays. Um, this is when the temple is birthed in the heart of David. So God gives him this covenant. Now, David is not going to be the one to eventually build the temple, but 
the temple gets put in David's heart, and it's a beautiful piece. It only happens whenever he's very connected with our Father in heaven. One of the things that it takes me, somebody asked me, they said, how do you pray? Um, how do you get through this breakthrough kind of prayer time? And really, uh, it, my prayer time is, has been birthed from the Old Testament. And I know that sounds weird because the New Covenant is really where we connect with God and His heart. But as I, as I look at the Old Testament, something in me, it takes me a long time to pray. It takes me a long time. It usually takes me 30 to 40 minutes to get all the junk out of my brain so that I can finally sit still with the Lord. David spends this intimate time with him. People say all the time, well, how do you, how do you get into this like very intense prayer time? And I can't even explain what it, what it is. I'm like, it's, it takes a lot of time for me. I'm not, and again, maybe it's just I'm not smart enough to get there faster, but I got to dump my brain out. Like, Lord, these are the thoughts on my head. Get them out, get them out, get them out. Uh, here's this, here's this, here's this. And then it's like this, I just want to sit in your presence. I just want to be at your feet. I just want to experience a moment with my Father in heaven who loves me like crazy. David gets to this point in this time, and God speaks to him. And when David speaks to him, he prays. And then in, in verse 27, the end of the verse, listen to how it says this. In the original language, it reads a little different and is so beautiful. But it says in verse 27 of chapter 17, uh, Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever, because you, for it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. That word blessed shows up multiple times. And when it says forever, uh, it's where we get the term in business, perpetuity. Perpetuity means it just keeps going on and it won't ever diminish, right? It means it's going to keep going on at the rate that it's been given. Here's, here's what we've, in our world, everything seems to diminish, like everything, everything. The dollar was worth more a hundred years ago than it is today. Our homes were worth more. Well, maybe not in the market today, but as, we, as you look at things, things seem to diminish, right? As soon as you drive a car off the lot, my, my grandfather always told me, never buy a new car because the second you drive it off the lot, it's worth half the price. And so I've never bought a new car. I've, in fact, I've usually gotten really old ones because I'm like, maybe this one will go up in value, right? It becomes a classic then. And so as I've looked through life, everything seems to diminish. When David prays here, he says, you blessed this house, That word blessed is you've poured out over top of us. And then he says, you're the one that blesses, and you're the one that did bless, and you're the one that forevermore will continue a blessing at the same rate that you gave me in the very beginning. That's what that verse, as you read it over and over again, it's this triple blessing plus a blessing in perpetuity. Every time you go to him, you're going to experience that blessing, that same intense blessing. This is where, again, my heart through First Chronicles, my heart is always, give me that fresh. I want that fresh fruit. I don't want that old moldy stuff. I want it fresh from you every day. And this word says forever and ever and ever. In perpetuity, you're going to continue to get a fresh blessing because I'm the one that blessed this house. And David's line from here we see in Chronicles will continue. That's a blessing in perpetuity for all of us. Like this is a blessing forever and ever because Jesus would then come from this line. I got to keep going. Oh my goodness. We got to wrap this up. Uh, in, in chapter 18, we know of something that we saw in first Kings chapter 10. We talked about that during our first King study. David tries to extend mercy to this other leader. Doesn't go well. Uh, chapter 19, he takes out the enemy. Um, so I encourage you, you know, the first King study chapter 10 specifically is where we talked about that. Um, and so what we read in chapter uh, 19, he goes and takes down those men that 
that, that took him out. You know, it was the one that they shaved all the men of David's head and all that crazy stuff. Uh, then we see in chapter 20, uh, more victories, victory after victory after victory. Uh, listen to verse number uh, 6 in chapter 20. This is just a fun one. I, I read this again uh, this week, and I just love this verse. And there was uh, war again in Gath, where there was men, a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and also a descend, he was descended from the giants. I just thought that was funny. Like, why put that in the Bible? You know, like this dude had six fingers and six toes on each hand. That's insane. Like, that's, this guy was a giant freak of nature, is what it's saying. Like, this, these guys were men of war, men that you didn't want to go up against. And what do we see? In those, uh, uh, in chapter 20, David gets victory after victory after victory. It was amazing, incredible. Uh, I don't like chapter 21, just totally honest with you. I don't like what happens. David gets conceited. You know, we talked about earlier whenever David went up against the Philistines and then he goes back again and God's like, don't get conceited. I want you to go this other way. David listens to Satan himself and he says, because it says in verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 21, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. David stopped listening to the tops of the trees and began to listen to the footsteps around him. If we could please not listen to the footsteps around us and listen to the tops of the trees, because in this moment, uh, something terrible happens in 21. Uh, David gets conceited. God's not happy. He gives David a choice. He says, okay, David, you got three options. You, you, have, you have disobeyed me. You, a man after my own heart, has, you've hurt me, David. You are going to get it now. I'm giving you three options. You can either, one, let all of these people come and take you out. You can let this happen. You can let this happen. Uh, and he gives them three different options, and each option has different spans of time. First one's three years, next one's three months, then three days. And David's like, I don't want to fall to the hands of men. I don't want all these, ter- please just give me three days of your wrath. And in three days of the wrath of God, 70,000 men of Israel died. Um, that's what David chose. And David, as the leader, had to make that choice. And God said, okay, here's what's going to happen. Um, then David was very convicted. Uh, he built an altar, made a sacrifice. But even in that, if you read at the end of 21, what you'll see is David got a fresh uh, fear of the Lord. If it's not of God, watch out. If it's not a good, David at this point, and he's even back in right standing. He builds this altar. He makes this sacrifice. He's praying. He's, but it says he wouldn't get too close because he was afraid of the sword of the Lord. He was afraid that the Lord is still angry. Like when the Lord's anger burns against people, like this gives me chills too, not in the same way as the other did. This one gives me chills too. When the Lord's anger is burning against someone, he does not lose. David recognized this and said, I stepped out of God's will and 70,000 of my men have died. That's, that's, that's a real thing that happened. And David says, all of my, these mighty men of mine are now gone because I messed up and listened to the wrong voice. I told you earlier, be sure you know who's speaking into your ear. Be sure you know who's speaking into your ear. Don't let the enemy speak into your ear. It was out of conceit and out of pride that David made this decision. Chapters 22 through 27, uh, all about the temple preparations. Now, again, David doesn't get to build the temple, but David gets to 
supply and prepare all the things for his son to eventually build the temple. And um, so you'll see chapters 22 through 27, all of these things that happen, he gets the preparations ready. God allows him to do this. God put it all together. It's this wonderful, that's a wonderful organizational structure too. You get a lot of leadership notes out of these chapters because it's like, here's, God doesn't just say, build the temple, here's all the money, do it. God says, no, 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 build the temple. Here's what I want. Here's how I want it. Be sure you structure this out organizationally. Have authority in this because you don't want everybody's too many cooks in the kitchen kind of phrase, right? And so David sets up this organization for the temple to be built. It's this amazing thing. Uh, chapter 28, then, after the, all the preparations go into place um, and uh, the leaders of the different tribes and how this all plays out, chapter 28 uh, lays out uh, in, in verse number 3 specifically, um, it tells us, and, and you know, I said a couple of weeks ago that because David was a man of war, he didn't get to build the temple. God wanted the temple built by a man of peace, Solomon. So in chapter 3, or in verse number 3 of chapter 28, it says, But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. That's where that came from, by the way. It wasn't just, I didn't just make it up. It was from the scripture, uh, but it was from the Chronicles, which give us a little more of why things didn't come to be or why things did happen, right? So we can see more as we survey it out. Um, he then, after these uh, uh, words, he, the, next, the rest of the chapter, he gives a charge to the people of Israel. He then gives a charge... Um, to them saying, listen, it's not just for you, it's for the next generation. Now, I can't imagine, in my mind, in my heart, I think about where David's at at this point in his life. He's at the end, okay? He's at the end, it's almost over. And he says, he says, listen, I have, I've made mistakes and it's cost a generation. Think about it, 70,000 men died because David made a mistake against the Lord. He didn't listen to the Lord, he listened to the enemy. I, in my mind, there is, there is so much weight in that because we think, oh, 70,000 men. 70,000 kids lost their dads because David was a fool, because David did not listen to the Lord. David is saying in these, in these charges to the people of God, he says, listen, prepare for the next generation. He, and David's at the end of his life. The more I've talked to people that are my grandparents, my grandfather says to me a lot how he's proud of his grandkids and his great-grandkids growing up in the Lord. Like, he's thinking about us a lot. He's 83, 84 and he's thinking about me a lot. He's, he's one of my most, most faithful podcast listeners. I love it. Every day he'll, he'll send me a note, great word today, preacher. And I, I love it. It's so encouraging to me And as, as he's sending me these. But he's saying, because it's not just about, because when you get to the end of your life, as David is at, he's saying, it's, I, I'm almost done. This has to keep going. This, God's work is not going to stop with me. It's not going to stop just because a hero of the faith dies. It needs to be about what's coming next, and God's continuing to work. Because, see, God's still faithful. Great is His faithfulness to my whole life. Great is His faithfulness through the next lives. My whole hope is I teach my daughters, God's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. He goes on. He says He gives a charge to Israel not just to live for themselves, but to live for the next generation. Then in the end of the chapter, he prays, uh, in, in especially into chapter 29, uh, he preaches, he gives a charge to Solomon, he preaches, he prays, and then he passes away. And then we turn to Second Chronicles. But today, I want to encourage you in this. Uh, David, we learn a lot through David's life, we learn a lot through the actions and the things that happen in the Chronicles and why they happen. Um, I, I want to just say two things. One... God's not done writing your story. 
Um, if you're in the middle of a storm, jot down some notes, but don't think that's, what's, that's why it's happening. You know, we always try to answer the question. When we're in the middle of trauma, when we're in the middle of tragedy, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? I went through some deep tragedy not too long ago. And I began to beg God, why is this happening to me? There's no way this is, there's no way this is right, God. I cannot believe that this was your plan. I'm telling you, I'm looking back a couple of years later. Oh, I didn't realize, Lord, why you were making changes. I didn't realize, Lord, why you were doing these things. I still don't understand everything. You know what? I'm not, I'm not going to put my stamp of finished on the project because God's not finished. So I'm going to be sure and, and be mindful and wise enough to be able to say, I didn't know what God was doing then. I see a little more what he's doing now. But eventually I'm going to get to the point in my life where I'm going to write an autobiography about my life. And I'm going to say, I had no idea. And I may not know till I'm in heaven why God was doing the things he's doing. It's not my job to know why. It's not. It never will be my job to know why God is doing the things he's doing. It's my job to be obedient and not listen to the enemy. That's my job. That's it. So as we go through First Chronicles, my encouragement is know who you are listening to. Are you listening to the voice of the Lord or the voice of the enemy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today I am thankful for your word. God, this convicting word, this beautiful word, this beautiful story. I know, God, that uh, as, as this was written from, uh, in, in our surveys purposes from a divine standpoint, I love seeing your heart, Father. I love seeing your motives and your reasonings and all of those things. But God, I just, I just love the fact that you would choose to use any of us for your purposes and your ways. Father, never let us, never let us forget to go to you when the enemy shows up, to, to listen to you and you alone. God, don't let us forget to turn our ear upward and not downward. Don't let us forget to when you've got us positioned in the place we are supposed to be. Don't let us get too loud. Don't let us get too much commotion going on. Let us be still and silent so we can hear when the God of glory is going before us. Lord, may that be what characterizes us. May that be the testimony of your people here in Loudoun County at New Providence. Help us today, Father, to live out the beautiful principles in your word and bring us back next week as we jump into the second book of Chronicles and see more of who you are and what you do and why you do it. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you.